Let us pray. So, Lord, we do pray, indeed do pray, that you would be our ruler of all. You are our high king of heaven. So now we ask that you would come among us and work your good pleasure in us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. As I said, even as I greeted everyone, it's been a very full and busy week around here. And you can see the atrium has been transformed and the rest of the children's wing is still in the process of being transformed for our monumental VBS that starts at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. And we're very excited about that and um, to see what God is going to do in our midst this week, this coming week. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles or, device with, or devices with Scripture on them to the 12th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. Looking at our Gospel reading this morning, there are also Bibles under the pews if you need them. The setting for today's Gospel reading is Jesus teaching his disciples regarding the leaven of the Pharisees and for Jesus' disciples' need to trust God in the midst of persecution. Now, while all of this was taking place as Jesus was teaching his disciples, the crowds that had gathered around Jesus and his disciples were quite large. As a matter of fact, Luke 12, 1 says, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. So you can picture this throng of people pressing in around Jesus and his disciples trying to hear and to see what's going on. And in the midst of this teaching, Jesus' attention and the focus of his teaching shifts abruptly when he's interrupted by a man in the crowd. Look at verses 13 through 14 with me. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, rabbis and teachers in that day were often asked to mediate these kinds of disputes because of their knowledge of the Old Testament law. However, in reality, this man's motivation is not just and equitable. He's not looking for a fair mediation of this matter. Whether he's looking or he's asking Jesus to side with him against his brother. Look at what he says in verse 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In other words, Jesus, take my side and tell him what he needs to do. That's not looking for arbitration or mediation. He's simply looking to get someone on his side as his advocate. And Jesus refuses to get enmeshed in this man's attempt at manipulation. And instead, he launches into a teaching by means of a parable to give both a warning and an exhortation to both his disciples and the entire crowd of thousands who were listening. Jesus' teaching here is a warning. And while it is framed with a negative example in the parable of verses 16 through 20, I believe it is also an exhortation which has positive, even wonderful implications for faithful disciples, for faithful followers of Jesus Christ. So Jesus begins even before the parable with a warning, a warning to guard against covetousness. And this warning that Jesus gives here in verse 15 frames the entire teaching that he gives. Look at verse 15 with me. But some of them said to him, excuse me, wrong verse 15. And he said to them, 
Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Everything illustrated in the parable that follows involves the ramifications of either heeding or ignoring Jesus' warning in this verse, here in verse 15. What we as God's people here are called to guard against is covetousness. Now that's a big word, but the Greek word used here for covetousness is defined as greediness, insatiableness, avarice. Say the speak in the theological lexicon of the New Testament says this about this word that's used for covetousness here. This substantive, which entomologically means have more, want more, can be used in a favorable sense for gain or profit. But in practice, it means either consuming ambition that aims at supremacy and is linked with arrogance and is thus a social vice, or more wealth, or excuse me, or more greed for wealth. In other words, this idea to get more. He continues, not only is covetousness insatiable and excessive, it is also aggressive and does not hesitate to wrong a neighbor or gain his property through extortion. The same word used here for covetousness is also used in today's New Testament reading from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Look at the list of sins here again closely that includes covetousness. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and then covetousness. Brothers and sisters, that should grab our attention. Covetousness is idolatry. That is an incredibly serious thing, a grievous sin against God and against his holy character. It is idolatry because when we or anyone else is covetous or greedy, we put something of this world in the place which only God should occupy in our hearts and lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleships, Discipleship elaborates on this at length regarding why covetousness or greed is included in this list in Colossians 3.5. Hear what Bonhoeffer has to say. Greed is related to fornication. An insatiable desire is what they both have in common. And it is what lets the greedy person become enslaved to the world. God's commandment says you shall not covet. Fornicators and greedy people are, not ha are nothing but desire. Fornicators desire to possess another human being. The greedy desire to possess the things of this world. They seek power and authority, but in so doing, they become slaves of to the world to which their hearts cling. Both fornication and greed bring us into contact with the world in a way that stains and defiles us. Both are idolatry, since in either case, our hearts no longer belong to God and Christ, but to the coveted goods of our own world. This is incredibly serious stuff. 
And this is why Jesus gives such a firm warning, warning his followers, his disciples to be on the guard against this and reminding those that are truly his that one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Verse 15. Jesus then moves into the parable. And in the parable, he gives a tragic example. The parable which Jesus gives in verses 16 through 20 helps us to see in some very real world and practical ways ways in which this warning applies to our lives. At first glance, the farmer or the rich man in the parable may appear wise. He's making what superficially can be justified as prudent, efficient, and savvy business decisions. There is no indication of cheating here. The produce he considers is from his own land. Here is the heart of the problem, though. This farmer, this rich man, is making his own plans, trying to secure his own future without reference or consideration of God or of his neighbor. It's all about him, his competence, and him planning and trying to secure his own future by his own means and on his own terms. Look at the wording here. Verse 17, what shall I do to store my crops. Verse 18, I will do this. I will store my grain and my goods. Verse 19, I will say to my soul, my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. You hear the first person pronoun here? It's all I and my. Can you see the self-absorption and the false sense of self-sufficiency? He has it all figured out and it's, it's all about him. His plans, his wealth, his pleasure. With no consideration for God or for his neighbor. And what this farmer in this parable exemplifies to us is greed, covetousness, and the idolatry that comes with this way of thinking and doing. Why is that? Because he has refused to entrust himself to God. And therefore he cannot entrust his possessions to God either. Now we certainly don't earn our salvation by giving and by doing. But I'm here to tell you how someone stewards their earthly possessions, whether that be money or skills or talents or knowledge they've gained through education, time, all of those things. It is usually a pretty clear barometer of how a person is entrusting themselves to God. This is the heart of the matter. Am I going to trust God or am I going to try to take things into my own hands? To be clear, I'm not talking about your responsibility here. But we must trust God and seek his will. That's the heart of the matter. This farmer is going to do his own thing, hoard what he has and then eventually coast through life. Or so he thinks in his distorted assessment. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. 
And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Life, true life begins, hear me, when we reach the end of ourselves, when we stop trying to control everything in ourselves, when we stop trying to handle and accomplish things on our own effort, through our own efforts, on our terms, with our plans. True life, true abundance of life comes through surrender. And that's contrary to everything this world tells us. But true life comes through surrender. By wholly yielding ourselves to Christ. Yielding all that we are to God in Jesus Christ. Because this rich farmer tries to control life himself, God calls him a fool in verse 20. Because he is not just withholding his goods. He is withholding himself from God. And he's failed to recognize God as the source and supply of all the temporal wealth with which he's been blessed. He's also withheld himself from his neighbors. Let's not forget the context here. This is the ancient Near East. In contrast to this man's immense wealth and the surplus harvest that he has in this particularly good year, most of his neighbors, in reality, would have been day laborers, struggling to eke out a living day by day, just trying to do enough to get a meal and get food for that night and the next day. Joel Green, in his commentary on this passage from Luke, says this, Given the subsistence economy of the peasant population surrounding him, this need for increased storage space not directly related to his agricultural activity must have seemed odd in the extreme, if not utterly monstrous. John Nolan, commentating, giving commentary on the same text, says this. The farmer of our story was already rich before his claim to economic self-sufficiency is sealed by the bounty of these very special years. All his responsibilities in life will now have been met, and all the needs of his life will be satisfied, or so he thinks. But God burst in upon the self-satisfaction of his life. At this point, with so much wealth at his disposal, this person should rightly have seen that his responsibilities had only begun. Do we understand that? When we are blessed materially or financially, it increases our responsibility to God and to our neighbor. Look at verses 20 through 21 with me. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But here's the bottom line. Please hear me. Things don't have to be this way. Things don't have to end this way. This is the beauty of what Jesus teaches here. The converse is that we can live lives of full surrender to God. Lives of godly blessing. And that is God's call to us if we are true disciples of Jesus. It all begins with surrender. Surrender to God opens the floodgates for us to be rich toward God. We are made as we surrender alive with God. 
not just in this life, but we receive that Zoe life, as the Greek would say, eternal life in God, beginning right here and right now that lasts for all of eternity. As we surrender ourselves to him, God's Holy Spirit is at work in us, and God the Holy Spirit will root out of us every form and trace of idolatry. As we yield ourselves to him, he will transform us into the likeness and the character of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 5 through 7, to go back to our reading from Colossians, says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then it continues. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Do you hear that? Change, transformation is possible. In these you once walked, but as the people of God, you aren't bound to walk in those ways of being and doing anymore. That's God's message to us. We're not bound and trapped in those things anymore. We can live holy, surrendered lives to God for his glory and for his purposes. By God's power, we can be free from every idol that this world tries to erect against us. We can be free from self-absorption, bondage, and false trust to the stuff, the idols of this world, free to live holy for God. Amen? God has blessed us, every one of us. God has blessed us as a church. And he has entrusted us with much. And with much comes great responsibility. May we, by God's grace and power, be faithful stewards and live into that sacred trust he has placed in us as disciples of Jesus Christ. Quite frankly, that's what our monumental VBS is all about. Taking that which God has entrusted to us and reaching our community, reaching our neighborhood. That's why we do food giveaways. That's why we partner with missionaries. That's why we're moving into other things that God is calling us to because we want to be faithful stewards and we want to surrender to God and surrender all that we are as a church. And I pray for every one of us as individuals and families that we surrender those things to God for his use and for his glory so that he can work through us in wonderful and glorious ways so far beyond human capacity that we can't even grasp it. Every Sunday we hear what is known as the summary of the law. Jesus' words from Matthew 22, 37 through 40. That's a very important part of the opening of our Eucharistic service every Sunday. Where we hear these words. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We can indeed love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. We can indeed love our neighbor as ourself by God's grace and power work in us. If it wasn't possible, if it wasn't true, Jesus would not have commanded it. You see, love and surrender to God leads to freedom. 
and the power to be free from covetousness and greed and the things of this world. Free from being controlled by the stuff, by the idols of this world. And as we're freed from all of that stuff to serve God with all of our being, comes the second thing. Then and only then, because it grows out of love for God, then we can love our neighbor as ourselves, as God loves both them and us. Let us pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name with hearts filled with gratefulness because it is in you, in surrender, in dying to self that we find true eternal life. We enter into abundant life that is not tethered in any way to the things, the stuff of this world. So Lord, I pray that you would um, lead us to lay down any area in our lives that is an idol, anything in this world that would keep us from fully surrendering to you, anything that would seek to displace you and the rightful place that alone is yours in our lives. May we lay that before you. And Lord, thank you for this word of a corrective that Jesus gives that is also a word of encouragement because it speaks the truth of the reality that we are new in Christ, that we through Christ can truly love our neighbors, not in the flesh, but with your love alive in us. So Lord, lead us, make us faithful stewards of all that you've entrusted to us. Lead us all together into deeper levels of surrender that we may serve you in ever-increasing measure by your grace and your power at work in us. And we ask all these things with thankfulness for what you have done and are doing in Jesus' name. Amen.